God in heaven, as we open the Bible, we ask that you would bless us, that you would teach us, and that the word would be meaningful to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is the greatest missionary. I mean, I am so thrilled to read stories about the Apostle Paul. I mean, the guy was amazing, right? He's like traveling by foot, traveling by boat, arrested, shipwrecked. Uh, He's stoned. I mean, the guy is, he's a hero. He's amazing. So Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us the things that motivated him to carry the message of Jesus to all the world. So what is it that motivated the Apostle Paul in his mission work? We're going to start 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. And he says this, So we make it our goal to please Jesus, Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So what Paul is saying here is, is whether I am in the direct presence of Jesus or I am not in the direct presence of Jesus, I make it my goal. I make it my passion. I make it my everything to be pleasing to Jesus. And then he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So Paul says, whether I'm in the direct presence of God or not, I, I put my whole heart into serving Christ so I can be pleasing to Him because I understand something really significant, and that is that every single human being will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will be held accountable for the things done in the body. Paul says, I try to please Christ because I understand I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul follows this up. Paul follows this up in verse 11 by saying, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, I love the the King James here. The King James captures the the intensity of this verse when it says, knowing therefore the, what does your Bible say? The terror of the Lord. Now, Now, Paul says, look, I'm trying to be pleasing to God because I understand I am going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and not just me, every single human being, and this is scary. In fact, it is terrifying to stand before the judgment seat of Christ without Christ. And because I am a person who understands how scary it's going to be to stand before the judgment seat of Christ without Christ, I am busy trying to persuade others. Now, we're going to find out later in this chapter, he is persuading people to be reconciled with God. My friends, I I want you to be clear about something. The very first thing that motivated Paul in his ministry is the simple fact that the judgment is terrifying. Now, look, I know that's not fashionable. I know that's not what the cool kids say, okay? But it's the truth. 
How many of you have ever been to court? Okay, a few of you raising your hands. I, I got a speeding ticket when I first moved to Sonora, and it was a totally unjust speeding ticket. Um, what, you, you're, like, you're laughing like I'm lying to you or something. No, no, no. I, I, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of, you know, more like a half dozen speeding tickets in my life. And all of them were just, except for this one. This one was genuinely unjust. I had just moved to the community, and the speed limit was posted at 35 miles an hour. Miles an hour. I was driving maybe like 36, but I had big tires, so I was probably actually driving like right at 35 miles an hour. And I come around a corner, and the police officer pulls me over, and I think, well, that's weird. Why is he pulling me over? I'm, you know, 36, 37 miles an hour. He pulls me over, and this, this little guy was really upset. Not at just me. I mean, he was upset at every other people drove by fast, and he was, he was just, he, he was, uh, what should we say? For any of you scientists, he was sympathetically dominant that day. His, nervous, his sympathetic nervous system was turned on, and he was angry that day. So he gave me a, a speeding ticket, and I, 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 I saw the posted sign at 35. He said, no, there's a sign back there that changed the speed limit to 25. So, so I turned around, and I drove back, and sure enough, there was a speed limit that said 25 miles an hour, that was covered by a tree branch. So I took my phone out, and I took a photograph of the sign covered by a tree branch. The next day, I was driving, and in the same road, and that tree branch had been cut. Now the sign was totally obvious. So I took a picture of that, and a month later, I went to court. Now, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a speeding ticket. It was a $100 fine. If I would have paid that $100 fine, my family would not have starved. My life would not have been negatively impacted very significantly at all if I paid that $100 fine. In other words, I'm at court, and the consequences are actually quite small. Do you follow me here, yes or no? The consequences are quite small, and yet I am, ab- and I'm dressed nicely, and, and there's the judge and I'll be on. there's the officer who was making accusations against me, and I'm going to have to stand up and testify, and I was absolutely scared, nervous. It felt, forgive, I, I hope you don't take offense at this language, it felt like a holy, sacred thing. You're standing before a judge. You're swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, I mean, it was a scary thing. And, and I'm used to talking in front of people, and my heart was beating. And, and, and you know, and, and she, I told her about the tree. And, and, and she says, well, do you have any evidence? And I said, yes, I do. And I showed her the picture, and she took out her magnifying glass. And then I said, and the tree was cut. And I showed her a picture of that, and she looked at it with a magnifying glass. And the officer says, well, I'm... I'm she says to him, did you know the tree was obscuring? Yeah, I'm the one that called them to have it cut down. She says, well, why did you give him a ticket then? And she struck her gavel and she said, not guilty. And that felt good, right? The judgment, even for a little $100 speeding ticket, 
was, it was scary. Very scary. This judgment is a judgment that determines destiny. So Paul looks out at the world and he says, look, I'm seeking to be pleasing to God because I know I'm going to face this judgment. And that's a terrifying thing, not just for me, but for everyone. So I am busy seeking to persuade people to be reconciled to God. That's the first thing that motivated the Apostle Paul. Now, continuing on in the text, he, there's a little inside baseball here for those of you guys who um, follow the text. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you opportunity to take pride in us so you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, Paul was a short, balding man, and um, I can identify with that. And there were in the church at Corinth these super apostles. They were excellent communicators. They were filled with spiritual gifts. And they were, they were special people. And so the church had been kind of taken captive by these sort of, forgive the language, rock star ministers. And so the short, balding, babbling Paul comes along and he's like, hey, look, guys, I'm not here to brag about my ministry. But I am trying to kind of set some context for my ministry compared to these super apostles, okay? So this, that's the inside baseball. We'll get on with this message. She says this, we're not, uh, verse, verse 13, for if we are out of our mind, or your Bible might say beside ourselves, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, I want you to follow this. What Paul is saying here is, is like, like, look, I am trying to persuade you. I am trying to persuade people to be reconciled to God. This is serious business. Everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if, and if I look crazy, if I look completely out of my mind. Okay, have you ever seen a preacher and you thought, whoa, that guy is nuts. Yeah, have you seen that? Okay, that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, church, look, I know I'm a short, bald guy who's not a great public speaker. That's what Paul says. And, 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 and I'm here kind of defending myself a little bit against these super apostles that have infiltrated into the church. But I got you, you got to understand something about me. I understand it is terrifying for people to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I am seeking to persuade them to be reconciled to God. And if I look nuts, if I look crazy, it is because this stuff matters big time to God. And then he says, and if I look like I'm in my right mind, well, of course, I'm trying to make a good impression on you. Right? So this is the first thing that got Paul out of bed every day. But I got to tell you this, church, if this is the only thing that motivates you in ministry, very soon you will grow weary. Because fear, there's, a, there's an anti-fear kind of culture sometimes in Adventist Christianity. I can't, I can't deal with that. And the reason I can't deal with that is because Jesus said some super scary stuff. And I don't want to turn the scary stuff the Bible says into milk toast. You follow me here, church. And yet, there is way more to the Bible than that because notice what Paul says next. Notice what he says next. It's absolutely beautiful. He says this. 
Verse 14, for the love of Christ, what's your Bible say? Constrains, compels us. Okay, now I want you to follow what Paul says. Yes, he's, he looks out at the world and he sees in every single person people that will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. He looks at every single human being and he says, there's a person that will someday stand before the throne of God and be held accountable for the decisions and the lifestyle choices that they have made. Every single person will experience that, and it is going to be terrifying. So I am persuading people, I am pleading with people, and I look sometimes a little crazy to people, but that's okay, because I am not, it's not about me, it's okay because I am compelled, I am compelled by the love of Christ. I'm compelled by the love of Christ. And, and I want you to notice where he goes next in this. He says, for we thus judge, we have concluded, we are convinced, one died for all. Therefore, what's it say? All died. Now, I ha- I have to, we have to take some time here because this is a very, and King James says all were dead. So if, if you have that, that, that makes it a little less awkward. Unfortunately, in the Greek, it's the awkward thing. One died for all, therefore all, what? Died. Now, oh, look at this. You guys are amazing. Thanks. One died for all, therefore all died. This is a very kind of, what does this mean? The wages of sin are what? Romans 6.23, wages of sin are death. Follow with me here, church. One died for all. Death equals the wages of sin. You got everyone with me here? Okay. So what's the worst possible thing that could happen in the judgment? You could be condemned and you could receive the wages of sin, which are what? One died for all. Therefore, how many died? All died. You know what Jesus said? You know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying the negative consequence of the judgment has been borne by Jesus for every single human being. The negative consequence in the judgment has been borne by Jesus for every single human being. So Paul says, look, I know that it is going to be a terrifying thing for people to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because many people there will have not followed Christ and not trusted in Christ, and they will receive the negative consequence of the judgment, which is the wrath of God that that ends in death. But then Paul says this, I am motivated by that, but I am motivated by by the love of Christ in the fact that He died for everyone. Therefore, everyone died. You know what Paul is saying here? You know what Paul is saying? He looks at every single human being and he says, you know what? If that person is lost, it is the greatest catastrophe because Jesus experienced their lostness for them already. And so Paul is compelled by the love of Christ. Now, I want to share something with you. I, I've been taking this class on comparative religions. It's been a fascinating class. So I was, I was reading a, a, a lot about Hinduism 
because there's a unit there on Hinduism. So I was reading about Hinduism. And, and church, I need you to stay with me here this, this afternoon. I actually had this incredible sense as I was reading about Hinduism. I said, there's no heaven. There's no hell. There's a million different gods. So if you don't serve the right one, there's no consequence. Okay? And if you blow it in this life, you get reincarnated, you do a little better, and you'll just constantly do better and better. Okay. Now, compare that with the legalistic Christianity that so many people embrace. Okay. I'm not going to ask you to, to raise your hands, but how many of you are wrestling all the time. You're almost like, you ever have your computer with way too many programs open at the same time and it just runs slowly? You ever have that experience? How many of you feel like, don't answer, how many of you feel like you're kind of like that? But the program that you have opened is this program of condemnation. That you're not good enough. That you're not going to make it because you're not faithful enough. How many of you have that program? Don't answer. How many of you have those programs open on your computer and they run all the time and you live your life with this sense of anxiety because you know there's the true God. His name is Jesus Christ. And you know that, that if you don't serve the true God, you, there's going to be a judgment and it's going to be terrifying. You know that and you have these, these programs open, these programs of condemnation, and you're living your life and you're kind of always hoping you'll be good enough and hoping you'll be saved. Now, this is the thought that I had then. I thought, look, if we have a legalistic version of Christianity that is condemnation-centered, it is more destructive psychologically than the false religion of Hinduism. You get what I'm saying here? Now, I, trust me here, church, I'm not advocating for Hinduism. I'm advocating for Jesus. Because the truth about Jesus is that He took your condemnation on the cross. One died for all, therefore how many are dead? All. You know what that means? On the cross, Jesus took your trip to hell. On the cross, Jesus took your trip to destruction. On the cross, one man died for every person, and that one man that died for everyone took everyone's condemnation. And so Paul looks out, and he sees the terror of the Lord the lost will face in judgment, and then on the other side, he sees the love of God in Christ in taking everyone's judgment of condemnation. And those two things motivate him because he does not want Jesus' death to be in vain for any person. Church, here's my question for you this morning. This is, this, is just, this is just between you and Jesus. Question for you, is Jesus enough to free your conscience and liberate you from a death in hell? Or is He not enough? That's the question. For me, there is only one answer. Jesus is enough. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to say, 
We are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live to themselves, but for him who, for their, uh, who died for them and was raised. Again, Paul says, look, church, church, if you are alive in Christ, then live for Christ. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now, church, I want to I want you to get a feel for what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, look, judgment for everybody, the death of Christ for everybody, because of this, I no longer judge people from a worldly standpoint. Let me tell you a story. I was not raised as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I grew up next door to a Seventh-day Adventist church school. My neighbors behind me were Seventh-day Adventists. They were great people, great people. They, 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 their dad would come rototill my parents' garden every spring. They were nice people. They, I cannot believe those good, godly Seventh-day Adventists could tolerate living around me and my obnoxious brother and our friends that were always flirting with the cute Seventh-day Adventist girls at the church school. Okay. Honestly, I don't know. Looking back on it, if, if like I was them... And my family and my kids' friends lived there, and those godless heathens lived where I lived, I would have wrung their necks, right? Good, sweet, godly Seventh Amnesty people. I was a punk rocker. And uh, God began to work in my life. I began to go to that little Seventh day Adventist church. God was doing something special in my life. And their little son would always invite me to church because I, I rode my bike. My, my, my uh, job was just a couple miles from my house. I'd ride my bike to work, and he would always uh, stop me and say, hey, are, are you going to come to church this Sabbath? Oh, uh, yeah, I am. Are you going to come to potluck? If I was going to church, he always followed up. You come to potluck, right? So when I was baptized, Roxy, that was the mom of the home, she said, you know, um, when our little boy would always, he would always want to pray for you at family worship, and then she said, I never really wanted to. (laughs) And then she said, because I was just sure you would never really be converted. And I didn't want him to be disappointed in unanswered prayers. Now, you might think I'm judging her, but I get it. I get it. How many ever looked at somebody and said, that guy could easily make a great Seventh-day Adventist? Anybody ever said that? How many ever said, you looked at somebody else and you're like, not happening? (laughs) Come on now, be honest. How many of you have done that? Raise your hands. Okay. Okay, I I don't want to, shame on you. Okay. Okay. Shame on me. You get what Paul says? Put our text back up on the screen if you can. What Paul says is is this. Look, every person is going to face the judgment. Jesus has already taken their judgment for them. One died for all, therefore how many died? All died. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We made that mistake once with Jesus, but we don't do that anymore. Amen? Notice verse 17. You're going to love verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? 
New creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You follow the logic. Paul says, look, everybody's going to face the judgment. Jesus died for everybody. There's no reason for anybody to experience a judgment of condemnation. So I don't look at anybody for what they are. I don't make that mistake anymore. I did that once with Jesus. Bad idea. I thought he, I looked at him just from a human point of view, and I was wrong. And I don't do that anymore. I don't make that mistake. I don't look at anybody for what they are. I look at everyone for what they can be. And anybody can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, I love this text for a couple of reasons. First off, in in the Greek, it's really simple. It says, anyone in Christ, new creation. That's all it says. It's like very terse, right? In Christ, new creation. It's, it's very intense in that way. Now, check this out. It says, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Basically, what this is saying is, you, you read through all the Old Testament, and you see all these promises of a new heavens and a new earth and everything being wonderful, right? You, you, you're familiar with those kind of promises? What this text is saying is, All those promises of a new creation are a reality right now if you get to know and are in Christ. So Paul says, look, number one thing that motivates me in the mission, the terror of the Lord. Number two, the love of Christ. And these two things together cause me not to look at anybody for what they are, but for what they can be in Christ. Verse 18, All of this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I want you to follow here what this verse says. According to this verse, who did God reconcile? Okay, look at it carefully. God was, King James, God was in Christ reconciling the... Okay, who is God reconciling in Christ? Okay, okay, us, yes, according to the text. The world. Now, what is God not doing according to this text? He is not counting their sins against them. That's amazing. Check this out. God reconciled the world. And God is not counting their trespasses against them. Church, take out your hand. Just go ahead and take it out right here. Put it kind of over the left side of your heart. Do you feel that thing moving in there? That is your heart. Check this out. That means you're not dead. That means God is not counting your trespasses against you. What are the wages of sin? If God was counting your trespasses against you, what would you be? But you're not dead. Amen? Your heart is beating. Your heart is beating, which means that God is not counting your trespasses against you. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world, and he is not counting your trespasses against you. My friends, you wrestle with sense of condemnation. If you were condemned by Christ, you would be dead. It's just that simple. The wages of sin are death. If your heart is beating, you can know that God reconciled the world and he is not counting your trespasses against you. Come with me to Romans chapter 4. I want to show you something really important. Romans chapter 4. We're going to begin, I believe, in verse 6. Romans 4. David, yes. David says the same thing when he speaks. We're going to go 6, 7, and 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessed... The, the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, okay? This is a person of faith. Blessed are those whose transgressions, what's that word? Are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will, what's that next word? Say it with me, never count against him. Church, Check this out. You've got to get this. God is not counting the sins of the world against them. God will never count the sins of believers against them. Did you catch the difference? Right now, down in the city, there's a man who's hitting his arm to get his vein to pop up so that he can inject some heroin. Right now, your kid, I don't know which one of you it is, is not at church with you like you wish he or she was. Right now, all around this globe, there, are, there is an infinite supply of rebellion against the true God. You follow me here, church? And God is not condemning any one of them. God is not counting their sin against them. He isn't. And He's not counting it against you. And, and, and God is pleading with people to be reconciled with God, so follow, so that not only is God not counting their sin against them, but He will never count it against them, not now and not in the judgment. Do you follow me here, church? I can tell you're not. It, is, it, is this freaking you out? Is it, is it just, it's, it's like, whoa, I'm in new territory. Is that, is, that, is that how you're feeling? Okay, church, listen to me. It's, it's real simple. The wages of sin are what? Okay. Which means if God was holding your sin against you, you would be, you're not dead. And it's not just you. It's the whole planet. They're not dead. Ellen White refers to this as a second probation where God is not holding our trespasses against us to give us a chance to be reconciled with God so that not only would He not be holding our sins against us now, He will never count them against us Not now and not in the final judgment. We're not going to people and saying, if you give your heart to Jesus, He'll treat you well. 
We're not saying that. We're going to people and saying, if you'll be reconciled with God, He will continue to treat you the great way He's been treating you right now. He'll treat you that way for eternity. You hear the difference? God reconciled the world in Christ, and He is not counting their trespasses against them, not now. And if they will be reconciled with Him, He won't count them against them now, and He won't count them against them in the final judgment. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. So what is our job? Our job, church, is to help people be reconciled with God so the good way that God has treated them right now can, can continue throughout eternity. Because God promises for those who have faith, church, let this, let this sink into your mind right now. Especially those of you who are carrying this computer program, too many programs open on your hard drive and you're just constantly bearing this burden of guilt and shame and condemnation. Just, 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 just let this verse sink into your mind. Talking about people of faith, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will. What's that next word? Never count against him. You hear that, church? If you're trusting in Christ, God is not counting your sins against you, and He will never count them against you, not now and not in the judgment. If you're not trusting in Christ, listen to me, this is solemn, God is not counting your sin against you, but you will face it and own it in the judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this, verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. What? Be reconciled to God. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to become sin so that as we are in Christ, we could become the righteousness of God. We could have right standing with God. Verse 1 of chapter 6. God, as God's fellow workers, listen to this incredible language, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you, listen to these words, church, incredible, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace, how? Mind blown. You know what he's saying? God was in Christ reconciling the world. Is that an act of grace? God is not counting their trespasses against them. Is that an act of grace? You better believe it. And you know what Paul's saying? Can you please be reconciled with God so that all this grace that God has shown you through your three score and ten, can you be reconciled with God so that grace is not in vain? So that when the final judgment comes, 
God says, they trusted in Christ. I will never hold their sins against them. When the final judgment comes, says, I wasn't holding their sins against them throughout their whole lives, and they refused, and they refused, and they refused to let me never hold it against them. But because they refused to, 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 they refused to receive me and trust in me, I have to honor their wish and hold them accountable for their sins because they won't let me hold Jesus accountable for their sins. You following me here, church? And so Paul says, please do not let this grace that he's shown you be in vain. Verse 2, for he says, in the time of my favor, I I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, church, we're going to end on this, and this is Paul's mission to the church. Listen to what he says. We're going to just keep going quickly now through these verses, and then we're going to pray. We put no, I'm in verse three, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. Okay, because because everybody's going to face the judgment, and because Jesus loved and died for everyone, because of those two true things, and because anybody can be new in Jesus, and because God will never hold your sins against you if you trust in Jesus, because of all of these things, what does Paul say? What does Paul say? He is committed to putting no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry may not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity and understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, O Templeton Hills, and opened wide our hearts to you. You hear what Paul says? Because everyone is going to be judged and everyone could be saved because of Christ. God is not holding the sins of anyone against them, but they will face them in the judgment if they refuse to let Jesus hold them on the cross. Because of this, we're breaking down barriers between people and Jesus. We're making the way so that people can get to know Him unencumbered. That's our job. That's our job. Church, let me tell you a story. I was a brand new Seventh-day Adventist, and as a brand new Seventh-day Adventist, I had gone from being a punk rocker to a Seventh-day Adventist. And you know, it was kind of taking me a little while to feel comfortable in my identity as a religious fanatic. Do you get what I mean by that? That's how everybody viewed me as a crazy man. Right? All my old friends, my punk rockers, who had like whole piercings and tattoos and, and weird clothes and crazy hair. I mean, they looked at me as, as, as if, you know, that I was now a weirdo. Okay? 
So I was kind of, you know, it was kind of taking me a little while to be comfortable in my identity. My church was doing an evangelistic meeting, and there was a friend of mine that I bumped into downtown, and I, I was convicted by the Spirit to give him an invitation to the prophecy meeting. But I was uncomfortable with my new Christian identity, right? Because what if he thinks I'm weird, or what if he, you know, judges me because I'm inviting him to this thing? And anybody ever felt that way? Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't do what the Spirit told me to do. Opening night, guess who's there with his wife and his brand new baby? My friend. Somebody else invited him to the meeting. And at the end of that meeting, he was baptized. And about four years later, he was a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And another friend of ours, he invited to the next meeting the next year, and he became a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And you know what, church? I always look back on that and I think, the devil stole my blessing because I could have been the one that invited him it could have been me. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm glad. Look, it's not about me. I'm glad that he met Jesus. Amen? I'm glad somebody had the courage to invite him, but I wish it could have been me. Amen? So, church, I encourage you, invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. Come out. I'm going to do my best to preach the gospel, and I can guarantee if you've been to a million prophecy seminars, you've never heard one like the one I'm going to do. And that's the truth. And I'm not saying because it's going to be better than everybody's. It's just going to be Nathan's. Let's sing our closing hymn together.